Hi, you are listening to the VJ Himong podcast. Today, we are led by Amr Zaydan, who chairs an excellent discussion with experts from around the world who discuss the epidemiology, diagnosis, and treatment of MDS in their respective countries, including the challenges they face when treating patients. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of MDS uh, Sessions, and Happy New Year. We're hoping for a better 2021 for everybody. And uh, it's a pleasure to have this episode where uh, we go from the traditional discussion of uh, new drugs and novel mechanisms of action into some of the challenges that are experienced uh, by MDS patients across the world. And it's uh, really a pleasure to have some uh, investigators from across the world basically with me today. So my name is Amr Zaidan. I'm an associate professor of medicine at Yale University and the director of hematology early therapeutics uh, research. And I'm pleased to be joined uh, in alphabetical order by uh, Dr. Anne Warigi, who is a consultant hematologist at the Aga Khan Hospital in Nairobi in Kenya. And Dr. David Gomez Al-Magar, who is the head of hematology service at the Hospital Universitario Onal in Monterrey, Mexico, and the chair of council of the International Society of Hematology, as well as Dr. Mariana Guarana uh, from the Hemorio Institute in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, uh, Dr. Rishi Dawan, uh, who is an assistant professor of clinical hematology in the All India Institute of Medical Sciences in Delhi, India, And last but not least, Dr. Iman Abudale, who is a hematologist, oncologist, and an instructor of clinical medicine at the Naif Basile Cancer Institute in the American University of Beirut Medical Center in Lebanon. So really a very prestigious and uh, geographically varied uh, group of investigators. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. So, so we'll get to it. I, I think I would love to start by getting your sense on the epidemiology of MDS in, in, in your countries. Traditionally, MDS has been thought uh, in, in, in the Western world, at least, as a disease of older patients. Uh, statistics uh, basically point to MDS uh, happening mostly in patients in their 70s. The median age is 71 to 76, with most of the patients, 80%, being 65 years and older. Studies have suggested that um, in some countries like uh, Far Asia, Many of the MDS patients are younger in their 40s and 50s. And uh, not much actually is really known about epidemiology of MDS in the other countries. So I wanted to get your sense um, if, you, if there are any studies that you're aware of from your countries, but also your clinical sense of how often do you see um, these patients with MDS. So maybe I can start with uh, Dr. Iman Abudali Angora. Thank you for the question and the introduction first. Uh, so unfortunately, in Lebanon, we do not have a national cancer registry that's updated, and usually it usually relies on passive reporting from oncology physicians. And MDS is usually lumped with other leukemia cases, so we cannot really specify the MDS incidence. However, there was some personal effort from our institution in 2015 We conducted a prospective nationwide uh, epidemiological data registry uh, over one year period. And this uh, usually estimated an incidence of 0.71 per 100,000 uh, habitant, and which is somehow lower than what's reported in the Western countries. Probably, like you said, it's probably, it can make sense because our population is younger. 
Um, but the median age was around 73, so it's still uh, occurring in older uh, patients. Uh, and of course, we have to keep in mind that this is uh, not a registry, but it's a study that might represent some, some underestimation or patients who were not diagnosed early on or not included in the study uh, that we did, we did like a few years ago. Dr. Almaga? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, in Mexico, we have uh, different uh, presentation of neoplastic disease, for example, Acute infantile leukemia is similar or a little higher than myoblastic leukemia. The median age of myoblastic leukemia is 44, 45 years. Uh, and still we're a young country, therefore we have a, an estimate of three to six uh, MDS patients per 100,000 inhabitants. That's more or less. Uh, as, uh, as other uh, not well-developed countries, we don't have that perfect statistics to mention. So my numbers are not really uh, exact, uh, nor precise, but I can see this more or less what we have seen here, three to six for 100,000 inhabitants, and the age, the median age, about 65 years old. It's a little younger than uh, in other Western countries. And Dr. Guarana? Hi, everybody. Thank you for this discussion. So the first challenge for me was to, when I tried to look into this information about epidemiology in Brazil, is that they don't have any data about epi epidemiology. So we have, uh, I know that we have a Latin American registry that has been in progress since 2017, but so far we don't have uh, any studies about our epidemiology. And when we, when I think about like Rio de Janeiro, um, uh, I know many um, institutions here, and I don't know anyone who is who has anyone who has a um, registry going on. So it's maybe now I have a, it's an idea to start a registry maybe in Brazil or maybe in Rio just to start. So we don't have this data. And Dr. Dawan. Yeah, so in December 2019, first week we had our national hematology conference in India, in which we presented uh, MDS uh, data from AIMS. Uh, and uh, from January 2017 to December 2019, uh, we had uh, 217 patients diagnosed with myelodysplastic syndrome. The median uh, of these, uh, the median age in our cohort was 51 years, and 60% were uh, of patients were males. Out of these 217 patients, 181 patients uh, had no no fibrosis in the marrow, and 36 patients had fibrosis in the marrow. So essentially, our data set compared the features of non-fibrosis versus fibrosis in bone marrow in myelodysplastic syndrome. And I'm quoting figures from this data. And Dr. Warigi? Uh, thank you very much. Um, so I'm in the same category as, as some of my colleagues here whose uh, countries do not have um, 
as yet properly developed um, epidemiology databases for hematological malignancies. And so I would have to rely purely on my practice and anecdotal data. The first thing I would say is that MDS to me is rare, even in comparison with other hematological malignancies. So in my practice, I would probably see one MDS patient for every you know, five to 10 combined acute leukemia patients. The second thing I will say is I agree that the incidence seems to be in quite young patients from the ages of 30 all the way to 70. Although this will be covered in the next question, sometimes you wonder whether we are missing on some bone marrow failure syndromes in younger patients due to our inability to carry advanced testing. So I would say I don't have um, numbers that give a proper estimate for my country, but in my assessment from my practice, it is rare and it does occur in younger patients than expected from the West. Yeah, and I think this is all very uh, interesting. Uh, you know, I think there is a general agreement that MDS, similar to the Western world, is, is generally quite rare uh, as a blood uh, cancer. And I think the fact that the median age might be a little bit lower in, in some of the resource-limited countries, since many of the patients are older, uh, this might uh, reduce the absolute total incidence. Uh, but I think when you take it as age-adjusted, I wonder if that would be along the same lines. And I, I think this brings up an important point. Now that we have a lot of, I think, increasing interest in MDS as a disease with many new therapies, uh, maybe collaborations between uh, pharma and investigators in, in different countries can help establish some registries because I think there is a lot of interest in kind of uh, reaching more patients so they can benefit from, from the new uh, therapies. And following on the point that uh, Dr. Warigi um, mentioned, which I think was also even in, in Western countries quite an issue, is the underdiagnosis of MDS because it occurs generally in, in uh, you know very older patients. Nobody wants to have a bone marrow biopsy, uh, especially back when we did not really have any active therapies. Um, and I wonder, in terms of diagnostic challenges, and maybe again I can start with Dr. Abudali and go around. Um, how is the diagnostic process work? Like how easy it is to get um, like cytogenetics or molecular data or to get a good pathologic review of the dysplasia? Do, um, do you review the model yourself or is there a specific hematopathologist? So maybe you can walk us through the diagnostic process of MDS patients. Sure. So basically, it depends on the patient if he's presenting to a primary care physician uh, in, a, in the community versus coming to an academic institution. So uh, there is definitely delays in diagnosis when a patient presents to a family doctor or to a primary care physician, um, since they have uh, probably sometimes mild cytopenias and then they delay uh, the bone marrow biopsies, etc. However, if these patients are presenting to an academic institution, we probably will be uh, offering bone marrow aspirate only on biopsies. We usually do it ourselves as a procedure, and then we have uh, a hematopathologist that reads these uh, 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 biopsies. Uh, we do have cytogenetics, uh, we do have as well the fish testing, and we do uh, DNA extraction in case there is any underlying disease that we can then add on molecular studies for later. 
Um, the NGS myeloid panel has been introduced like two years ago in our institution, and we use it uh, basically in difficult uh, cases where we cannot establish um, uh, uh, MDS diagnosis from morphology, uh, sometimes for prognostication or for therapeutic uh, implications. Um, but we have to keep in mind that NGS is still not covered by our national or insurances, so the, the patients need to pay out of pocket for these tests, and these are expensive, uh, especially with our economical uh, um, status. So there is a lot of patients that they might need help, uh, and we usually do offer them from our cancer fund uh, to, um, uh, to fund these testing uh, if necessary. Um, I want also um, uh, to say that uh, majority of patients, like two-thirds of them, usually they are referred to us uh, when they are at high risk, uh, having uh, excessive blast or they have refractory cytopenias, etc. And then uh, definitely the, these patients uh, were uh, diagnosed delayed in their uh, disease course. But it sounds like you have access to cytogenetics like karyotype and fission, almost everybody, if I understood uh, correctly. Yeah, yes. Uh, how about in Mexico, Dr. Almagor? Well, uh, in some centers like my center or in big cities, we have, uh, I think, everything. It's just just matter of money sometimes, but we have everything, including we have next sequencing generation. But... Uh, the majority of patients who are not in big cities or big centers are not uh, are diagnosed by the old way. It's like a refractory anemia without any other cause and basic based mostly in morphology, all right? Aspiration and biopsy, excluding other diseases. Uh, of course, we have seen mistakes like uh, you know liver cirrhosis or something like that, simulating that kind of, of problem. Uh, in the center with more technology. But uh, I think that uh, about 50 to 60% of Mexican patients are not really, really good uh, with good quality of studies. Uh, in the big center, we have this. So this is uh, the problem in a large and big country like us is about 120 million. And I, th I insist that about half of the population maybe are diagnosed by the old way to, to do. How about in uh, Brazil, Dr. Guarana, or in Rio de Janeiro? Yeah, yeah. When we talk about um, diagnostic process, the first thing is the difference between private and public hospitals. So if you work in public hospitals, the resources are scarce. So in my institution, we have um, karyotypes, and we um, perform morphology and bone marrow biopsy. However, we have to send our the bone marrow biopsy for other laboratories, so we don't have an hematopathologist in our institution. So we uh, to meet the patient, and the the first problem sometimes is the uh, delaying delaying to the patient to get into the department hematology department. So uh, for many times we receive patients with symptoms um, like for six seven, one year symptoms of anemia. So when they get into the hostel, um, sometimes they are already in transformed like to a kidney or leukemia. 
and the patient with the MDS who can perform like bone marrow uh, biopsy and karyotypes, but we lack um, training in the laboratory. So many times we have um, we don't have the results of the karyotypes. So I think that the main problem is sometimes we don't have um, training for the people in the laboratory, and sometimes we don't have like resources because um, NGS also it's in public health in Brazil is very difficult just in private hospitals and also in private hospitals you have to pay for NGS because it's not covered by insurance so it's very different if you are in private hospitals or in public hospitals. <coughs> Yeah, and I think like an important aspect connected to this, maybe maybe I can ask you to touch base on this um, with the next treatment, uh, when we talk about treatments, is, you know, the, the nature of the insurance system in your country, because, you know, I wonder if, you know, if uh, the difference between private or uh, national insurances and what, what does that mean in terms of availability of whether it's diagnostics or um, therapeutics. So, Dr. Dawan, how is the diagnostic process in India? Diagnosis of myeloid dysplastic syndrome is difficult for most of the centers. The main reason is that clinical hematology and hematology services are still restricted to big cities. So majority of uh, India, the smaller cities don't have access to good hematopathology as well as clinical hematology. And uh, at AIMS, diagnosis of MDS, uh, like majority of other centers in country is morphology based. There is very limited access to good quality cytogenetics and genomics. And uh, even at our institute, we have to outsource these uh, tests to private, uh, to private laboratories. And essentially, when we outsource it, we don't have uh, a very good control over asking them for a review. For instance, if uh, the, even though the cost of cytogenetics, the conventional karyotyping in India is uh, in dollars, it is 75 to $100 per test. So it is still cheap by, uh, I guess, mm. American standards. But uh, if not enough metaphases are observed by the lab, it is very difficult to convince the patient to shell out again uh, uh, funds for uh, repeat testing at these labs. So that is one example. And with regards to next generation sequencing, it is also not very expensive. Uh, it is 200 to $300 per, uh, per uh, NGS uh, uh, panel. However, we don't have control over the bioinformatics, the calling of variants. So many times uh, we feel stumped by the report. Uh, <clears throat> so we still rely essentially on morphology and however, if the patient is very poor, cannot afford anything, uh, then the minimum we ask is to try to convince them to get a fish for deletion 5Q. At least uh, that would uh, give them access to a generic lenalidomide, which is uh, very, very cheap and has gratifying results, as we all know. Yeah, no, I, you know, I... Um... A couple of years ago, I actually gave um, an MDS talk through the American Society of uh, Hematology in Indonesia. And I had the chance also to visit in Sri Lanka and talking to, to colleagues over there, they mentioned, I think, along the same lines of what you're seeing. So there is availability to do karyotype, but it's very limited. 
um, and expensive. So that you have to be selective. You cannot send it on all the patients. And I'm getting the same sense. Uh, you know, I think next gen sequencing is even a challenge in some you know parts of, of the U.S. So, um, but I do think Cariotab should be um, hopefully part of, because it's very integral to not only diagnosis clearly, but also for risk uh, stratification. Uh, Dr. Warigi, how about in Kenya? Yeah, so in our position, first of all, to come to the bone marrow biopsies, um, for many years, it has been kind of suboptimal uh, having access, obtaining access to good pathology services around the country. So the Kenya Association of Pathologists, along with the East African uh, Association, got together and piloted a program where they train pathologists and physicians outside of the capital to perform bone, bone marrow tests. So now we have a situation where bone marrow biopsies are performed in most uh, major sectors of the country, and they can then be referred to hematopathologists in the center for reporting. So that has been a major improvement over the last few years. However, we do not have the facilities in the country to perform any cytogenetics or next generation sequencing for any patient. So even in my service where I might um, see um, MDS patients, unless I'm suspecting an MDS at the outset, it is relatively quite unlikely I will send off cytogenetics, which I have to send overseas. So because um, if you do your bone marrow aspirate and then see the morphology to be um, dysplastic and you've captured your cytogenetic sample, you could kind of run it the next day in your lab. But in our setup, we, the, only, the only samples we get to send off, we send off to India and we send them once a week. So if you're thinking you have an MDS, you kind of have to do this, the test on the one day of the week. And instead of the patient paying just $150, they then have to pay another $200 or $300 on top of that for the sample to be sent to India. So I think you can see for, for MDS, it becomes a little bit of a challenge stratifying these patients outside of what we can see morphologically and what the, the, their counts are doing and their age and things like that. It is on rare occasion that an MDS patient gets cytogenetics done and we don't have next generation sequencing. Yeah, and just you know, you know, speaking to many colleagues across the world, unfortunately, this is not, I think, very unique to Kenya. As we're just saying, I, I think this access to karyotype is actually quite challenging in many countries, which I think is important to try to improve um, care for for these patients. So I think on the next slide of questioning, I will start with Dr. Warigi and go in reverse order, and I, I want to discuss just connecting to the same as we start talking about treatment, the, the issue of blood transfusions. Uh, you know, blood transfusions, many MDS patients are regularly transfused and it's an integral part of, of the treatment. And I think it could represent a big challenge in, in some countries to do that in a regular uh, fashion. Uh, also connecting that to the insurance and how does the patient kind of pay for transfusions um, and its availability in routine basis. So maybe I can start with you again, Dr. Rory and go around. Thank you. So with regards to blood transfusion, it really is a divide between public and private sector patients. Um, not long ago in the 
middle of COVID, we had a major blood shortage in all the public sectors in the country. Um, so our national blood bank was empty. And we tend to have the situation where everyone in national blood services has to do a replacement donation. So you can't get a transfusion unless you bring a donor. The private health sector seems to be uh, significantly somewhat better. But on the private side, the costs rack, rack up quite high. Um, and uh, it is very... Um, hit or miss whether you get insurance to cover transfusion because uh, insurance um, tend to you know decide to maybe only pay for inpatient pro procedures but then won't pay for a transfusion as a day case and so on and so forth. I think another challenge from our transfusion perspective is our transfusion in private sector is quite expensive because we don't have um, not testing. So we test each sample as if, it's a, as if it's a patient sample. So for instance, your hepatitis B, HIV, hepatitis C, malaria will all be done separately. And wow. so they're they very costly tests. So at the end of the day, the cost of a pint of blood to the patient is very high. That being said, you know, patients put together their money, their insurance, their donations from relatives, and then come for you know four weekly uh, transfusions, and and we do carry on with it. Uh, we do get a challenge with um, iron chelation because that's very expensive again. And for patients who don't have insurance, it became it becomes a balance between: Am I going to get transfusion? Am I going to get chelation? So for the transfused patients, it's um, it's it's a little bit of a short-lived process and I tend to try to move to medication um, um, because you know most of the time um, by the time I get to trying to chelate them we run out of money yeah Dr. Dawan how, how about transitions in India the situation is quite similar to Kenya when I listen to Dr. Miyagi so uh, patients have to uh, can get transfusion only if they replace the unit uh, for the blood as well as, you know, platelets. And uh, uh, universal leukodepletion is not available in India. Approximately uh, 30 to 40% of centers uh, still give uh, whole blood transfusion to the patients. And uh, uh, irradiated blood product facility is not available in most of the centers outside big institutes and uh, big, big private sector hospitals. And plus at our institute, we uh, transfuse uh, around uh, uh, 1,500 transfusion sessions every year in our daycare. And uh, as a result of this, there is you know, competition for resources between patients uh, with thalassemia, aplastic anemia, then myelodysplastic syndrome, and patients with acute leukemias like ALL who are on outpatient therapy. So effectively, this limits the access to blood transfusion for transfusion-dependent myelodysplastic syndrome patients at our center as well. So transfusing them optimally to maintain a good quality of life as we read in the, as is recommended, above eight grams per deciliter of hemoglobin, most of the patients are unable to achieve that and their hemoglobin very frequently hovers between five to eight, eight grams per deciliter when we see them in the clinic.
Uh, how about in Brazil, Dr. Guarana? So in Brazil, oh, we have this system public health. So it's not so difficult to get um, blood transfusions if you need and if you are um, receiving medical care in an hematology department. So if you have insurance, you can uh, have blood transfusions like covered by uh, the insurance. But if you have, uh, if you are in a system public health, um, the problem that we have is, I think that is the same all the world is uh, with donors. In my institutions, my institution, we also have a good center of chemotherapy. So for um, frequently we do we perform like campaigns to get more donors. And if you are treating a patient with MDS or acute leukemia or another malignancy, it's not difficult to prescribe a blood transfusion because it is covered by the government. Dr. Gomez? Uh, transfusion is not really a big problem in my country, but uh, it's about 80% have access to transfusion all over the country. A collation is not uh, uh, easy to, the, to, to give, and it's about 20% of the patients in need will receive collation. But uh, transfusion is not really a big problem in general in our country. That's uh, a, a good situation and uh, uh, of course we try to get donors but usually uh, emergency transfusions are provided in general in, in our country it's about uh, I think that 70 80 percent of uh, patients will get easy transfusions in our country all right so you don't have that replacement system where the patient has to bring like relatives or friends? Uh, to oh yes, uh, yes. But usually, uh, it's a, how can I say? Uh, patients who uh, the surgeons ask for blood, and usually that kind of blood are not really used. You know, so in big center usually we have uh, more blood, uh, and that's what we. Uh, that's the way we are doing because the surgeries, the surgeons are asking for blood just for, you know, to be sure that something happened. <laughs> and usually uh, the problem is not really happening. So yeah. we have some blood. <laughs> but yes, we, we try to, it's not, we don't have a lot of, uh, you know, free donors, usually related donors in, in our country. And how about the cost of the blood? Does the patient, uh, is it covered completely by by the insurance, or does the patient have to pay a cost on? on, on it's money? about uh, eighty percent, seventy percent of the the people uh, are covered one way or another, but the cost is not too high. Uh, to get a transfusion here in Mexico is about one hundred and fifty dollars, sometimes two hundred. It depends on the institution, uh, but. Uh, uh, about 70 percent, 60 to 70 percent of the people have access to transfusion, almost free, right? Almost free. That's that's great, uh, Dr. Abadale. How is it in Lebanon? Uh, yes, in Lebanon, so most of the patients have access to blood transfusions, and it's covered by most of the insurances and also the public health. Uh, however, we do not have a central national uh, blood bank. So it's usually, we do have blood banks uh, from Red Cross, from NGOs and from institutional blood banks. 
where they usually rely on directed donations, uh, like from friends and families, etc. Uh, the big challenge is for platelet transfusions because they usually really need some uh, relative or friends to uh, donate platelets. Uh, and especially during the lockdown uh, in the COVID-19 pandemic, so that we had a, a shortage uh, in, uh, in blood units and it was a, a real challenge. About the issue of the irradiation and the leukodepletion, is that quite routine in, in Lebanon, or is that also a challenge in terms of... Uh, yeah, we do we do have this in our institution, big institutions, there are many, uh, but in small community hospitals, they need to um, refer patients to other bigger institutions for irradiation and local production. That's, that's good to know. So uh, I guess I, in the last... Uh, oh, go ahead. One more uh, comment, sorry, to jump in again. Sure. Uh, you know, Another challenge what uh, I need to put forth is that, you know, most of the patients are unable to get definitive treatment and they continue on lifelong transfusion support. And then they develop allo antibodies, allo immunization. And then it becomes another big challenge to give them uh, least incompatible blood transfusion for support. So this is one more challenge which I forgot to mention. Yeah, no, it's unfortunately, it's, it's a common uh, problem in, in MDS patients, especially in the more advanced forms of disease. So I guess as we start to go into into the last part of the, of the discussion today about treatments, um, maybe we can uh, talk about among like the standard treatments like uh, ESAs, hypomethylating agents, uh, linalidomide, um, what are currently is available in your countries and how is it um, is it relatively difficult to, to get those drugs? And how many of your patients are being uh, treated uh, or not? Uh, maybe I can start with Dr. Gomez and go around. We, we are more prone and we are, you know, androgens fans, Danosol, Mestrolone, etc. And we have published that information. And we usually go to androgens and couplet with EPO, erythropoietin, and in the, at least in the not really high-risk cases, right? In the high-risk cases in my institution, we really go rapidly to transplant. We can, we can, we have experience using identical, and we also allogeneic, all, all kind of allogeneic. The cost of a transplant in my institution is about $15,000 in allogeneic. Therefore, it's cheaper for us to provide a transplant to treat the patient for a long time. And we have, of course, 10 to 20% of the population in Mexico have access to, to acetidine or, or lenalidomide, just uh, usually private insurance because the national insurance system will not pay for that kind of drugs. So it's a, a few patients will be treated with that kind of expensive drugs. Therefore, uh, we try to transplant uh, everybody, if uh, any high-risk uh, uh, patients, and we use androgens and uh, EPO in the low risk. And uh, what can I say? And in my personal opinion, dealing with uh, private patients, uh, you know, uh, acetidine or something like that is just like, a, you know, a fantasy 
for a time. That's my experience. They improve sometimes, but for a, for a while. And, and, and then they uh, are in plastic crisis or they're transforming or they're dying and you cannot transplant anymore. So my, I usually go to transplant rapidly. And if I use hypometallitis agents, it's just for a while, uh, in just for the time we get the donor. Uh, in the Aplo world, Aplo identical transplantation, we're doing a lot because, you know, that's changed the general how, way to do transplants, allogeneic transplant, and that's uh, what I have to say. And that, that's great. And I think somewhat similar to what many countries, um, resource-limited countries do with CML, where, you know, we have very good therapy, but it's lifelong and very expensive. And, you know, you know sometimes you choose to go with transplant because it's more cost-effective for the, for the system. How about in Brazil, Dr. Guarana, the issue of the availability of treatments and uh, ability to use them for patients? Yes, so this is a, one of the biggest problems because, uh, again, depends if your patient is um, private or public hospital. So if the patient has insurance, that's okay. Probably, uh, you know, they will get like lenalidomide or APO or apomethylation agents and probably will go to transplant, to transplant earlier. But if you are in public hostels, and I can say that most of the centers in Brazil um, are public, you have a big problem because we don't have um, um agents for all, just in a few centers. Um, EPO is also difficult to get for these patients and it's very expensive to pay. So they can afford like using EPO for a long time. And even when you, we use EPO in the public health, we only have the uh, presentation of 4,000 4, units, really hard. So, and new agents in general, and I think that's it's impossible when we never discuss this because we don't have clinical trials. And sometimes we just have transfusions to keep the patients like alive until the transplant. And even in this COVID era, um, it's been really hard to get the patients into transplant. So what we are seeing is that many patients are transforming to AML or dying of MDS because they, have, they need um, a lot of blood transfusion. So, and you have the problems um, with this. So it's not easy. And yeah. sometimes like, like in Mexico, sorry, uh, we use thalidomide and with, yeah, and with EPO. Yeah, and this innovation I've seen in, you know, whether with androgens or thalidomide. How about in India, Dr. Doan? Do you have access to those, like, uh, I guess, standard but expensive therapies, or do you try to innovate and use, like, uh, low dose intensity chemos or try to go quickly to transplant if possible? Mm. So, um, let me start first with the medical treatment and then move on to transplant. So India is very fortunate because uh, there is an abundance of generic drugs and uh, multiple generic op options are available for erythropoietin, lenalidomide and hypomethylating agents. 
For instance, average cost per month for linalidomide is US dollars 40 to 50 only. Wow. And azacitidine per month cost is around US dollars 400. So, <clears throat> you know, to begin with, most of the patients are able to afford. However, compliance is a problem as it is self-funded or limited government grant available per, per patient in our institute. And our institute is one of the largest and uh, most well-funded institute in India. It is an institute of national importance. So it is relatively easy for patients to access government uh, funds if we write and give an estimate to the patient and they apply, they get the funding. Most of them do get the funding. However, the problem is the lag time between the application and collection of documents and the patient submits it to the government authority for approval, then the fund is granted and then ultimately it is credited into AIMS account. That, that takes up time. The average time is, I guess, anywhere between three months to five months. So, uh, so, and uh, hence treatment is often not continued beyond one to one and a half years or maybe two years for most of the patients. And then there is slow onset of response with these treatments. That is also an issue. So financial fatigue is a phenomenon we see very often. Then another problem is long distance travel for periodic evaluations in the clinic. And then there is lack of access to clinical trials or access to newer agents like Luspartercept or isocitrate dehydrogenase inhibitors, etc. So that is with regards to uh, medical treatment. Then uh, the access to hematopoietic cell transplantation in India is limited. And the facility is restricted to three to four public sector teaching hospitals in the country. There are private hospitals that do carry out transplants. However, the, uh, because of the uh, finances involved, it is beyond the reach of most of the uh, lower class and middle class Indian population. Uh, in between, just to give you an idea of some figures, between 2012 to 2019, uh, around 400 allogenic transplants were done in India, of which 9% were done for myelodysplastic syndrome. Uh, <clears throat> As uh, Dr. Uh, Gomez uh, mentioned, uh, uh, transplants either self-funded or government grant. Average cost of sibling donor allogenic transplant in India is around uh, 25,000 US dollars. However, the challenge uh, for us at AIMS is the long interval between symptom onset and diagnosis, and then the long interval between diagnosis and transplant by the time patient arranges funds or the, we get access to government grant for the particular patient, a lot of time has elapsed. As a result of this, most of our patients, even if they don't progress to uh, accelerated or the blast phase of the disease, <clears throat> like EB, uh, EB1 moves to EB2 or EB, EB2 develops uh, AML, there is a high burden of infections and they develop other comorbidities like due to transfusional iron overload. So by, so by the time the transplant is sequenced for a particular patient, either as per the, not the disease, not, not only the disease criteria, but the patient fitness criteria also is compromised. Haploidentical donor and unrelated donor transplants are low in India. For instance, approximately 2000 transplants are done in India every year of which 16% are haploidentical and only 5% are matched unrelated donor transplants. Uh, 
and there is data which has been published from individual centers that there are, these are associated with higher transplant related mortality and morbidity as compared to what is observed from the uh, centers in the west now that that's very comprehensive thank you so much uh, dr abudale uh, yes, so in Lebanon, we do have all the approved drug for MDS. Uh, there is accessibility for growth factors, hypomethylating agents, lenalidomide. They are all covered by insurance and by the public health as well. Uh, we do have access to Luspatercept with a single patient request form. Uh, so it needs to be uh, requested on a patient name. Uh, we do have an etoplex uh, for AML treatment, but we can still use it in high-risk MDS patients and select patients, of course. Um, uh, there is uh, little access to clinical trials, but we do sometimes participate in a few clinical trials. We are currently recruiting patients for the stimulus MDS, the MDS2 trial. And um, uh, for the transplant, so we do have three transplant units in Lebanon. They are basically in the capital of Beirut. Um, and uh, we do perform allogeneic stem cell transplantation, mostly for uh, intermediate to high-risk patients or even in relapse low-risk uh, patients. Uh, and it's basically uh, match-related. We do have the haploidentical as well. It's uh, much costlier than India and uh, Mexico, so it costs around $80,000. Um, and we do rely on the comorbidity score rather than the chronological age, so we can transplant up to 70 years old. Dr. Wereghi, how about things in, in Kenya? Yeah, so um, uh, when it comes to treatment, I would say this is where our national health funding came into its own just a few years ago because uh, most of these patients would have no access to treatment, uh, but now um, you can apply for cancer treatment and get the treatment on a month-to-month -month basis. Uh, interestingly, in terms of MDS treatments, and thanks to the generics that come from India, you will find that in Kenya, uh, cheapest to most expensive goes, lenalidomide is the cheapest, followed by at $150, followed by transfusion of two units per month is about $250, followed by ESA, which is about $400, followed by hypomethylating agents, is a cytidine, which is about $550 per month. So that's the range of treatments available for a vast majority of patients. And Kenyans tend to be treatment-seeking patients. So once you get them started and they believe in the process, they'll keep coming. And as soon as the national health is funding them, they'll keep going. Uh, if they developed um, a more advanced MDS or they're not responding, then we that is the point at which we would refer them for transplantation. And the referral is usually to India because it's the most affordable. And obviously there's a whole, yeah, the whole build up to that is quite um, advanced. It's quite engaging. Now, um, in the private sector, patients who have access to very good insurance can have the branded, you know, Revlimid and the branded Videza. Um, but in some of those patients, it's worthwhile because of the cost of these drugs to refer them directly for stem cell transplantation when they have a donor, just because it's just as expensive um, over the course of just maybe two years to do the drugs on their own. 
Um, and that's just about how we do it in Kenya, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's very informative. Um, we are coming to the end of, of the discussion and I uh, really, uh, this is extremely informative. I think um, it's really uh, like we're expecting a lot of the difficulties and the challenges, but at the same time, it's really good to know that there is availability in, uh, in most countries to some of the active agents, whether they are genetics or not in, uh, you know, in, in different formats and also with relatively uh, you know, affordable prices. Of course, we need to do a lot more to allow more, uh, especially for clinical trials and transplant. Uh, sorry, Dr. Dawan, you want to say something? Yeah, and many times, you know, it uh, forces you to um, innovate. So, like uh, we mentioned in the previous part of the talk, uh, transfusion challenges. So, although there is no data, but uh, what I have now recently started doing for patients who, for whom giving them periodic uh, platelet transfusions is a challenge because of donor access and you know sequencing them in our daycare to get transfused, they are needing maybe every week or multiple times a week platelet transfusions. The, and the ladies are struggling with uh, menorrhagia. So I have... Uh, requested the gynecology service to put a hormone-releasing intrauterine contraceptive device like Mirena to them. And that has improved a quality of life because the alternative is to keep them on oral contraceptive pills, but then there is only, you can't keep them for months together on that. Yeah. And every, every month there hemoglobin goes down, then their blood transfusion requirement is an issue along with platelet transfusions. So that is something uh, which uh, we have now recently uh, started doing more and more often for, uh, for, the, for the ladies. And we are collecting data and after some time we'll get together and see uh, how it turns out. Yeah, innovation is always uh, very, very important. Um, there's so much to discuss. I really would love to have you all again in a subsequent uh, discussion, um, you know, more about some of those innovations and other ways to, to do this. And hopefully it would be in a COVID-free world and hopefully in few, in few months. And thank you so much again for, for being with us today and uh, happy 2021 to everybody. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody. Thank nice you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. To keep up to date with the latest VJ Himonk news, including cutting-edge content straight from Ash 2020, visit vjhimonk.com and follow us on Twitter at vjhimonk to join in the conversation.